Welcome to Grape Top Church Online. I'm your host, Homer Hargrove. Uh, we are starting a new series today called Easy Mistakes. Easy Mistakes. And at first, this was going to be a June series, um, but um, I really felt compelled that this is going to be something that uh, goes on into the summer. And so it's going to be a general summer series where we're going to do a person study of people in the Bible. I love doing person studies because um, I think the older that I get, the more that I realize what people meant when they said, I'm telling you, you don't want to do that. Trust me, I, I've been in your shoes. When people try to tell you to learn something from their experiences so that they don't have to, you don't have to repeat their mistakes, um, the Bible is a great avenue for us to be able to practice that and learn from the mistakes of these, these people of the Bible, some great, some not so good, but we're going to learn about how even people that we would least uh, suspect, how we're actually a lot alike. Um, that being said, today we're going to be talking about Judas. Judas. And the interesting thing about Judas is that most people would not, uh, would not quickly identify themselves as being like Judas. People normally, like if they're trying to compare themselves to someone in the Bible, like, oh, I feel like I'm an Esther. Or um, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm Peter or Ruth or I, I'm a Paul. Yeah. Uh, people like to pick the, the ones that are <laughs> most advocated as being like heroes of our faith. And rare, uh, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say like, oh, I'm definitely like a Judas. A hundred percent. I watch it. You know, I do my best, but I'm like Judas. <laughs> um, we're going to look at Judas today and do uh, really just unpack who he is and try to understand uh, one of the biggest things about him that has been uh, studied for a long time in theology, and that is his motivation for his betrayal. Um, before we get started, I want us to go over this idea, this concept of the roots of sin. In Romans, Paul talks about how people invent new ways of sinning. And so for a lot of us, we we kind of look at the Ten Commandments or like even the seven deadly sins. And we it's kind of this idea that we have that all sin is just already there. But Paul says that sin is able to be created, which makes sense, right? If you really unpack it, you can, you can be creative in inventing new ways to sin. And so uh, what, we're, what I want us to understand before we get into unpacking Judas is understanding the root of sin. While there may be a lot of different puddles of sin, there is a fire hydrant of all sin. And I believe that that, that is pride and perversion. It's a double-sided coin of pride and perversion. All sin that has ever been created is formed from either one's own pride or perversion. And perversion, to unpack what that is, perversion is not just sexual perversion, but it's a, what it is is perverting from the original intent. That's, the, that's what perversion means. And so when you look at the devil, even the Antichrist in Revelation and throughout prophetic books, the Antichrist actually tries to pervert and, and copycat all aspects of Jesus, all the way to where it says that in Revelations that the Antichrist will have a severe wound in his head and then miraculously recover. He's imitating the resurrection, which only Jesus has performed. And so 
the devil is always trying to pervert what God intended. All the way to the Garden of Eden, um, got, uh, from uh, what God had told Eve, the devil tried to pervert what God had said to her. The other side of this coin, which is what we're really going to focus on, is pride. I want us to understand what pride is when we're talking about it in relation to sin. There is a healthy kind of pride. What I think most of us understand when we first think of pride growing up is a type of confidence or like wearing your flag. Like you can have American pride or you can have pride in your culture. You can have pride in your family. You know, those are, those are healthy and good aspects of pride. Being confident is good. But the pride that we're talking about in Scripture Every time that's referenced to sinfulness, it's the type of pride that is self-superior. Self-superior, elevating yourself above others. It's the type of pride that is self-idolizing, thinking of yourself better and more important than others. And it's the type of pride that is self-fulfilling. It's completely selfish, me, 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 I, I, I. All me first, I'm best, I myself deserve this. And that's the kind of pride that we're talking about. That kind of pride, God talks an exceptional amount about in Scripture, about how he will humble the proud, those who are so haughty, those who uh, think so highly of themselves to where they belittle others because they think of themselves so superior, that he will humble those people, but he will exalt the humble. And this is pivotal in understanding the, the whole concept of Judas today. So what I want to do is give a brief timeline for anyone that, that may just have a vague understanding of Judas. Um, what Typically, when I talk about Judas to others, most people just think like, oh yeah, he's like greedy, right? <laughs> he's greedy. That's why he betrayed Jesus. And we usually imagine Judas as just like this obvious figure of betrayal. It's like he's among the disciples, he's like has dark, uh, dark circles under his eyes, like has kind of like these, his hair almost looks like devil horns. You know, he always looks sweaty. It has a, under his like robe is a kind of a devil tail that comes out. And it just seems like an obvious, obvious sign of someone that's going to betray, someone that's, that's evil, someone that's not good. Um, but I want us to unpack really the way that we can see Judas in scripture. And I want us to do our best to understand him as a person today. So let's go through his timeline, starting out in Judas's early devotion. Uh, as in John chapter 6, verse 66 through 71, Jesus just gave this message to where he said, uh, if you want to be my true disciples, then eat my flesh and drink my blood. He was speaking prophetically, but he didn't, explain, he didn't bother explaining himself because um, he was, in a sense, weeding out those who were not really willing to be committed to him. And so people didn't really like the idea of cannibalism, so they started a whole bunch of disciples, hundreds of people walked away. At this point, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples left and would no longer walk with him. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to leave also, do you? It's like, he's, it's like not even enough that all hundreds of people left. He's like, you're not going to go too? It's like uh, really intimidating at that point, right? Uh, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so, and we have already believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, 
Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I want us to pause right here and understand that at this moment, it, there's no inclination that Judas was going to had any inclination to betray Jesus. At this moment, in fact, he showed more devotion to follow Jesus than hundreds of other people. Furthermore, at this part of Jesus's ministry, they, they didn't have housing. They did not have security of food. There is no luxuries. When people would, were asking Jesus to follow him, he said, if you want to, but foxes have den to, dens to sleep in, but I don't even have anywhere to lay my head. We're sleeping outside. Are you sure you want to follow me? I mean, they were in extreme poverty as they were following Jesus. And so this was like a, a, a survival, <laughs> survival of following Jesus. When people were saying, let me go back to get some stuff, he said, uh, he, he would keep telling them, if you have to go back then, uh, and look back at the plow, then you're not worthy of following me. I mean, it was roughing it when they were walking with Jesus. When Jesus sent the 12 out to, to go heal the sick and cast out demons, they didn't even carry an, a second pair of sandals. They didn't carry extra food. They were, relied completely on the generosity of others and whatever they would find. And so the fact that Judas is with them at this point shows that he had a determination and even a discipline to follow after Jesus even when hundreds of people would not. And if we were to think about this scenario, a lot of us would not be following after Jesus at this point. We like to believe that we would, but it's because we know the fullness of who Jesus was. These 12 disciples are acting 100% in faith. They, they don't have any scripture, any, any uh, besides the Old Testament and all the promises of the Messiah, they are believing in faith that Jesus is the Messiah at this point. Judas is acting as a, as a major person of faith in this moment. Okay? Now, continuing on, let's go into the first signs of Judas having this perception that he knew better than Jesus, which is the same as saying that he knew better than God. This is also the moment where we start seeing Judas unravel this idea in his heart that he deserved better. And this scripture is in John chapter 12, verse 1 through 6. It says, Therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a dinner there, and Martha was serving. And Lazarus was one of the, those reclining at the table with him. Pause for a moment. Lazarus, Jesus raised from the dead. And after, this, after he ever got raised from the dead, it never shows Lazarus talking. This is just kind of like a personal weird thing. It's so hard for me not to imagine Lazarus just has this zombie at the table. <laughs> he's not talking. He's just sitting there quietly. <laughs> but he's, he's not a zombie. He's real. Um, Mary then took a pound of very expensive perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who intended to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the proceeds given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he, as he kept the money box, he used to steal from what was put into it. 
Now, this is where we first start seeing a glimpse of Judas having something wrong, <laughs> having, having this, uh, this, this sinfulness in his heart. I want us to understand a couple things in this scripture. One is that we see this idea about Judas where he's frustrated. This part that he's speaking out may be the first time that we see in scripture that he's speaking out. But anyone that's been close with people before, when someone actually speaks out something, it's after weeks or months of it being built up in their heart. So at this point, Judas has been building up a frustration with what they've been going through. He's been getting, uh, what I see is him getting more and more frustrated with the fact that they have so little and here this lady is, is to him wasting money and just pouring it out on Jesus' feet. And they're picking up leftovers from people that, from the crowds that Jesus just fed. They're eating the scraps and leftovers of what other people have eaten. And this lady just poured out 300 denarii on Jesus' feet. Could y'all not understand how that would be frustrating? If you've, if you've ever been in a, uh, if you've ever shared a bank account with somebody before, and they start spending wildly or just buying things <laughs> when you're like tight on money. You're over here thinking like, all right, like if we budget, if we don't get milk, then we can get, you know, two things of eggs and that will last longer. And all of a sudden an Amazon package gets delivered. <laughs> like that, that's something that will frustrate you, right? Well, that's what Judas is feeling. They're walking from town to town like not knowing where their next meal's coming from, not, not knowing if their sandals are going to last. Uh, this is, they're in an extreme place here. And so Judas is getting frustrated at the thought of money being wasted. It also shows that it, uh, the fact that he started taking money out of this, the, the money that they were receiving, it labels him as a thief, but it doesn't say why he was stealing. One, and let me just give us an imagination real quick. One could argue that Judas was taking money out because he felt like he deserved to pocket some of the side. He was handling all, the, all of the finances for the disciples. He was doing a lot of the administration work. And what I see is even a possible moment where, where Judas was, was thinking to himself, I better put this aside because they're going to just waste it. They're going to just waste it. They don't know how to handle money like I do. And he starts setting it aside. And when the disciples give themselves an audit of their finances later, it's simply labeled Judas is a thief. Because at the end of the day, intention doesn't matter. You took out what you were not supposed to. You're a thief. But when we understand the possible motivations, the possible intentions of why he was taking money out, a lot of us could relate to that a lot of us could understand the idea of feeling the need to do something because you didn't, uh, you didn't trust the people around you how they were handling that money. Now, what this reveals is a moment where Judas's frustrations start turning into this idea that he knows better than Jesus, which in turn is him knowing better than God. How many of us have told God how something should happen in a prayer. God, if you would just do this, it would all work out. If you'd have this happen, if you would cause this person to change, if you'd let me just win the lottery, then everything would plan out. 
We try to tell God consistently how to do things in our prayers, in our thinking, because we consistently feel and think that we know better than God. Let's continue on. This is an interesting part where we see Judas mixing right and wrong. It says in in Matthew chapter 26, verse 14 through 16, Then one of the twelve disciples named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they sat out for him thirty pieces of silver. And from then on, he looked for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now let's also... Uh, unpack what's happening here by looking at a, a corresponding scripture in the Gospels of Luke. It says in Luke 22, it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the scribes were trying to find a way to put him to death. Since they were afraid of the people, and Satan entered Judas, the one called Iscariot, who belonged to the number of the twelve, and he left and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he was to betray him to them. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money. And so he consented and began looking for an opportunity to betray them to, to, to betray him to them away from the crowd. This scenario where, G, where Judas decides to betray Jesus to the Pharisees is right after this incident with a woman pouring the perfume over Jesus' feet. Now at this point, what we see is two possible, uh, dis- uh, which are highly discussed and studied motivations of Judas. One is simply what we're mostly taught in, uh, in church, and that is he wanted the money for himself. He just wanted the money, and he was willing to just leave everything behind for the money. And the idea that it was just simply the love of money that caused him to betray Ju- Jesus. Another idea that is rarely talked about is the scenario that the disciples, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but the Jews at that time believed that the Messiah was, was to establish an earthly kingdom. They believed that when Jesus, the Messiah, was supposed to, to come, that pretty much he was going to uh, restore the nation of Israel being the, the most powerful nation in the world again. That they truly believed that the Messiah was going to bring an earthly kingdom. And when they were asking Jesus, uh, even when James and John were asking Jesus, uh, let, let us sit at your right and left hand when you sit on your throne. They were imagining an actual earthly throne and being given governmental authority over others, over towns and over people. They, this whole time they had the concept of, of being given authority on an earthly, in, a, in this, our earthly realm. The motivation studied about Judas to this extent is the idea that Judas was wanting to accelerate Jesus bring, uh, establishing his kingdom on earth. He's been following Jesus for three years, and at this point, the, there's an idea that's looked at that he was trying to accelerate Jesus's kingdom so that he would just already establish it already. He, uh, it seemed as though all, Jesus had already uh, gathered such a strong gathering to the point where he would enter a town and have, would have to leave it quickly because he, he didn't want them to try to make him king right then and there. And when he went to the chief priest, he knew 
that Jesus had the ability and supernatural power to, to call on God uh, to, to send either legions of angels to do something amazing to be able to protect himself against whatever the Pharisees could do. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when it was being taken told Peter, could I not call on a legion of angels that would come and rescue me at this moment? But no, my hour has become, and he goes on to the crucifixion. So Judas could, uh, could have very well believed that Jesus would have just uh, thrown, uh, thrown in the, the waiting towel, stopped wait, playing the waiting game, and would have just finally established his kingdom on earth. And it, he, uh, Judas could have even been thinking, he'll thank me later. I'm just, I, I know that it's already time. He's waiting too long. He just needs a push. He's, he's timid. He's, he's a little timid and he needs a push to be able to start his kingdom here on earth. Enough waiting. It's a really popular thought and there's, no scripture, there's not any, enough scripture to make a claim against this idea that Judas was actually trying to accelerate Jesus' kingdom on earth. Now, the, this last part is what, what gives even uh, more confirmation to what I'm saying. In John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30, it says, When Jesus had said these things, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, who is John. So Simon Peter nodded to this disciple and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He then simply leaned back to Jesus' chest and said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, That man is the, is the one for whom I shall dip the, the piece of bread and give it to him. So Jesus, So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After this, Satan then entered him. And therefore Jesus said to him, What you are doing, do it quickly. Now one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were assuming since Judas kept the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need for the feast or else that he was to give something to the poor. So after receiving the piece of bread, he left immediately and it was night. Another part of the gospel says that Judas responds to Jesus when he says this and says, surely it's not me, Lord. And I want us to unpack a couple things here. One, none of the disciples suspected Judas. Not one of the disciples suspected Judas. Now remember, we imagine Judas is an obvious person in the room that's going to betray Jesus, that you can just smell it from the, the beginning. Yet, he actually has somewhat of the personality, the character that fits in with everybody else, a, a sense of integrity to their eyes, that they didn't even suspect him. You would think that one of them, maybe Thomas or Peter, would have said, it's obviously Judas. We all know that it's you, Judas. But not one of them suspected that Judas was the betrayer. And in this moment, where even when, when Judas responds by saying, not me, is it Jesus? We could look at it two ways. One, we could look at it with him just still trying to play covert. Like, oh no, not me, right? But really knowing that it's him. Or because he truly thought that he was doing the right thing by accelerating uh, Jesus's kingdom through this 
this wrong motive of betrayal that he, would, he still didn't even see himself as betraying Jesus. That's crazy, right? <laughs> uh, and, and I want us to finish off with this last part. In Matthew chapter 27, it says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and handed him over to the Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he was being condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? You shall see it, you shall see it to it yourself. They're saying, well, that's your business. We're not going to deal with that. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and left, and he went away and hanged himself. What we see is this incredible display of remorse to where he's like shocked that they're taking Jesus away to die. This is why I feel more inclined to believe that Judas truly thought that he was going to force Jesus' hand and bringing his earthly kingdom. He thought he was really going to just cause it to happen instead of having to wander around in the desert with Jesus and the other disciples. And that's why when it said that he was shocked that, he was, that Jesus was being condemned why would he be shocked if that was all part of the plan and the remorse where he took back the silver if if he knew it was all about the money and he was just ready to leave that life why would he have even go back to just return the silver and say and try to tell them that that jesus is innocent it makes actually so much more sense to see that judas truly thought he was doing the right thing but the wrong way he and it, of course, this left him to the point of hanging himself and leading Jesus to the crucifixion, ultimately through the resurrection. And so I wanted to give that timeline about Judas before we wrap up today, because I want us to understand really key points of his mistakes. Man, that's crazy, right? <laughs> Usually the kids are in a different room. <laughs> Uh, but there's only one door right here uh, compared to usually we have like two or three doors. So um, hopefully they wrap that up. (laughs) Um, Anyone that has Lauren's number, feel free to text her saying like, hey, that's crazy loud in here. (laughs) Um, But so going into understanding the timeline of Judas and seeing that a lot of what had happened and the interactions between Judas following up all the way to the betrayal, it's not as simple as we initially think. It's not just simply uh, he wanted uh, more money and so he betrayed Jesus. It was so much more than that. And so understanding um, understanding the immense level of pride that took over Judas's heart, I want us to look at three quotes from uh, three quotes of what was going on in Judas's head that led him up to the point of making the biggest mistake of his life. And I want us to correlate and see how we make these quotes on a regular basis to ourselves. The first is the idea that someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to go tell those kids to shut up. Someone's got to. We all think things like that, right? Well, I'm not going to wait around. Someone's got to do it. 
The difference between taking initiative and taking control is pride. The difference between taking initiative and taking control is pride. This concept of someone's got to do it is just what Judas was thinking. He often tried to take control of his situations and surroundings. When he was taking money out of the box, he was trying to control how much money they were going to be able to save. He didn't trust the people around to do it, so he had to do it himself. We need a savings plan. You know, if we keep collecting enough money, we can make an IRA. You know, he's thinking ahead and trying to, he's trying to control what happens with the money. The motivation of our hearts is what matters most and it is the determining factor to acting out of pride or not. When we take initiative because we are actually being impatient or we actually want it done a certain way, we don't trust how it's being done by someone else so we want it done a certain way or because we want to manipulate a specific type of outcome. All of these kinds of ideas or motivations changes it from taking initiative to actually taking control. And we are acting solely in those moments. We are acting solely out of our own prideful desires to control. And what that is, is a false sense of sovereignty. We believe that God is sovereign, that all things are in his hand. And when we try to take things into our own hands and control, what we're doing is saying, I can do this better, God. I can do this better. Now, it's a fine line between the intention of it going from initiative to control. Initiative is really good and helpful. I love people that take initiative. But when it turns into controlling, anyone that's experienced the difference, it's a major uh, different result. When someone's being helpful and taking initiative and helping you, it's like, oh, this is amazing. But when you realize that they're only doing it because they're trying to uh, control you in some way, right after they do it, they ask you something specific and you realize, oh, that's why they did that. See, now the dots are connecting, right? Like in-laws. <laughs> See, that, that is the same kind of heart that Judas had. Let's look at another one. We talk, that someone's got to do it, controlling, false sovereignty, for the right reasons. Yeah, but it's for the right reasons, so it's okay. Yeah, it might be bad, but it's for the right reasons, so it's okay. You can never do something wrong for the right reasons. It will still be wrong. You can never do something wrong for the right reasons. It will still be wrong. Judas justified his clearly wrong actions by believing it was for the right reasons. When we listen to our hearts instead of uh, baseline morals and scripture, we will inevitably move the boundaries we put in order to cater to what we really want. If we only follow our hearts, eventually, uh, eventually everything will be permissible when we want it enough. If you even just look at your life, and uh, even though, you know, growing up we've been taught follow your heart from Disney and, and like every self-help uh, motivational speaker or influencer, like just do whatever feels good. 
The Bible says that our hearts are incredibly deceitful. And it makes total sense. Even this morning, when I went to bed last night, it was, it was late. It was our daughter's party. party. We didn't get sleep till, uh, go to sleep till like 1230. But I had told myself, five hours of sleep is plenty for me to get up at 530 to work out in the morning. I've done it before. That's what I want to do. I told myself that. In the morning, when my alarm went off at 5.30, and I looked at my phone, I said, hell no. And I put it back down. And I snoozed. Because at that moment, my heart convinced me of something more important. See, just from, in less than five hours, I decided something different because I followed my heart. So, so y'all are looking at me like, wow, I didn't get out this morning. <laughs> said he was going to do it. He didn't do it. Just in, that, in just that small example... I hope that you can see that our hearts can convince us of anything if we feel differently at the time. It is not a secure foundation. Your heart is always changing. Our hearts want something one minute and want something else the next. So that's why, like making a diet, just think about the simple things that we always do. Our heart wants this, so I'm going to make a diet. I'm going to be this way. But then in the moment, your heart wants something else. I want cake. I want ice cream. I don't want Greek yogurt. I want ice cream, dairy. Our heart changed. How much, if it changes so flippantly for little stuff, you better believe it changes for the big stuff. It changes big stuff too. And so that's why we can never try to justify something basing off of our hearts and what we want at the time. We have to base things of what's right and wrong out of scripture, out of morals. And when we do, when we try to, uh, when we try to justify doing something wrong for the right reasons, we, we give ourselves a false superiority. We make ourselves superior. Thank God they stopped playing music. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't think I can be serious much more. We give ourselves false superiority. And this, this kind of thinking puts you in the sense of looking down at everyone else while elevating yourself. Because you see things in a special way. Yeah, if it was someone else, yeah, it would be wrong. But I'm not going to do it like that. I, I know better. Do you, do you not see how you, you're literally putting yourself on a pedestal and making yourself superior to everybody else to where you're exempt from, from rules, from boundaries, from what's right and wrong, because you simply know better. It, it, is, is, it is pride that is fooling us. It's pride that is convincing us that we're truly that much smarter than, when we're, than what we really are. That we're that much more superior than what we really are. And... And finally, is the, the idea, the last thing that G, Judas says uh, to Jesus, besides uh, when he betrayed him in the garden. It's not me, is it? It's not me, is it? You can be talking about me. Oh, that quote was wrong. <laughs> the quote is, pride will cause you to imagine yourself as perfect even while doing wrong. Pride will cause you to imagine yourself as perfect even while doing wrong. 
Judas, even after going to the chief priests and deciding to betray Jesus to them, didn't see himself as a betrayer. Think about that. How many times have we done something, whether it's in our family, in our workplaces, on the road, where we've done something wrong, but we exempt ourselves? Well, I wasn't really doing that. Like, you know, when you like cut somebody off on the road, it's like, well, I just really had to get ahead of them. I wasn't really cutting them off. But it's like you cut them off. <laughs> Y'all see how we do that every day? Some of us more than others. And we, we, we have this false sense of self-righteousness. We're heavily critical of others. But for ourselves, we're blameless. Pride will lead us to truly develop this, this false self-image of blameless while being extremely critical to others. And this self-righteous attitude will always pass the buck of responsibility to someone else, while at the same time believing that the buck stops with you. You think, oh, well, I don't ever do that. But whenever you actually are caught doing it, like, oh, I was, it was their fault. They're the ones that were speeding. We do this in, in our families, in our relationships, in our churches. And it's, this false sense of self-righteousness. We're blameless, but no one else is. And even while we are betraying, we don't see this, ourselves as a betrayer. The reason I wanted to start this series with Judas is because I, my prayer is that we would not see Judas as this distant figure of imagination that is like, you know, equivalent to Hitler. Like, well, I'm not like Hitler, so I'm okay. But that we would see Judas is actually a lot more closer to us than we realize. Because only when we can become self-aware and, and look at the mirror and see the things really lurking in our hearts, that we can prevent the kind of mistake that Judas made. With all that being said, I want us to take a moment to, to grasp a lot of what we talked about. We talked about the whole timeline of Judas, unpacked the details of his story. We saw this false sovereignty, the false superiority, and the false self-righteousness that he carried. And I believe that a lot of us realize that we identify the, with those traits. We saw that his biggest mistake was actually linked to his pride, something that every person has, every person battles with. And this last, this last point, it's not me, is it? The moments that we are farthest away from God are the moments that we feel like we don't need any forgiveness from God. When we, I believe that the, the level of repentance of someone's life is dependent on the level of revelation of the cross. The more that we see ourselves for just looking in the mirror, not one of us is perfect. It doesn't mean that we have to like bash ourselves over the head, but just recognizing like, yeah, I'm not perfect. And not the false sense of perfect where we cast out responsibility. Well, no one's perfect. No, let's just look at ourselves. I'm not perfect, 
and I need a savior. I have made mistakes and I have just sin in me and I need forgiveness. I don't want to keep pretending to be blameless. I need to go to Jesus to become blameless. There's a huge difference from recognizing that you're that that you are not blameless to becoming blameless. And in this moment, I want us to have a conversation with God to where we just talk to him and and have this moment where we we throw off the the bows and ribbons that we've put on that we throw off our Sunday suits, that we throw off this false self-righteousness that we carry, these false uh, superiorities that we carry, and just talk to God as we are. It's a naked truth. And instead of saying, it's not me, is it? Saying, Jesus, forgive me for the times it was me. I want us to all bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here today, and you're just recognizing some moments between you and God that need to happen. You're recognizing conversation that you need to have with Jesus. Maybe you're even recognizing levels of repentance you need to have and saying, God, I've been passing the buck. I have not been uh, looking at myself I've been looking at, pointing the finger at everybody else, and I need to repent of this. The Bible says in the book of Romans that if you have a conversation with your creator, it says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead, that surely you shall be saved. It's, what it's saying is, if you talk to God, have a conversation with him, and are authentic about it. That whatever it is you're battling with, you'll have victory. He can rescue you from it. And so if that's you, just right where you're at, I want you to have a decision moment. Some of you, it might just be kind of a reconnecting with God. Others of you, it might be a first real conversation you have. A real kind of confession and uh, receiving. And whatever it is, I want you to just have a moment where you talk to God right now. And let it be a real raw decision moment to where you you have this moment where you say, from this point forward, I'm gonna see this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna say this. From this point moment, forward, there's going to be a change. Let there be a decision moment in your life right now between you and God. And as you're having that, I'm going to sign off online and we're going to get ready to have a moment of worship. But I want you to really have that conversation with God because you don't need me to lead you through it. You're going to have to talk to God a lot more than you ever see me. And so you might as well have a moment of practice now and talking to him. It's your own voice, your own heart. Thank you for those of you who joined online. We love you. Have a good rest of your day. Hey, this is Homer Hargrove. I'm the pastor of Grape Top Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for connecting with our family today. 
And I hope this message inspires you and that it makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. I hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did, there's a couple things that you could do to connect. First is to subscribe to our show so that the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And second is if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description or visit our website, gravetop.com, and you can give now. I'll see you next time on the Gravetop Church Podcast.